So like I said, this morning we're talking about persecution. We're in Acts chapter 5, and with that uh, kind of humorous introduction, uh, things will get a little more serious here. And what I want to do for the next three weeks, counting today, is get into the subject of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5 today. We'll talk about the story there. This is when persecution really intensifies with the church, and you see it break out to another level. We'll see it also again in Acts chapter 6 through 7. So next week, we'll talk about the thin red line, the line of uh, martyrdom all the way through. By the way, I don't know if anybody here, five years ago, almost literally five years ago, we did a Voice of the Martyrs conference in Colorado Springs at the Springs Church over in Briargate. Anybody go to that? You remember that? Yeah, okay. Uh, but anyway, that's one of the questions. Do we have persecution coming? And then um, the following week, August 14th, we're going to talk about out of the kettle. That's when the pressure builds up so much it boils over and it causes the church to expand. It took persecution to get the church out of their comfort zone and uh, make of that what you will. But that's what we'll see then. So what I want to do is share with you kind of a framework for persecution. But rather than do it all in one service, I'm going to spread it out over three services. So you get the scripture and then you get information about persecution. And I think today you'll be... Uh, you'll be kind of amazed what you see. So turn with me to Acts chapter 5, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into the Word of God. Father, thank you so much for your Word. Thank you for all you do and all you have done, and thank you for the faithful uh, remnant over the years, the, the many thousands of believers who have come to Christ and who have been faithful in their testimony. I think of people I know around the world today who are very faithful in their testimony and help us to be like them and to model after their example of faithfulness and perseverance. Um, it's easy to be a quote-unquote Christian when things are good, but it's harder when things get tough, and uh, that's when we're really challenged. Father, I pray that you'll take the word today and help uh, us all to understand it better, and uh, I want to just turn it over to you and pray that you'll speak to us and help us to see what you want us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter 5, we're going to be this morning in 12 through 42, so we'll start with verse 12. This is after the situation with Ananias and Sapphira. So that was obviously a very heavy situation. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through section by section here, and then I'll talk about persecution. Verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Now notice the apostles are doing them, although later we'll see Stephen do a miracle in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now having worked with the persecuted family for years, verse 13, uh, I find very interesting. Uh, what I see about this passage, it's so true to life. I mean, all the scripture is, but this one you just really see human nature. And in verse 13, none of the rest dare join them. And that apparently is the other believers that dared not join them because it was a hostile environment. They wanted to minimize the risk. This is one of the questions that the church faces around the world. If there's potential persecution, do you throw yourself into it, or do you just kind of low-key it? And I've seen both kind of things happen. Uh, it's, it's interesting, uh, in Ethiopia, there was a study done by Western believers, but of people, or was it Nigeria? Anyway, you get the idea, it was in Africa. And they, uh, they researched to see who was faithful, and what they found was the more committed you were all along, and the more you had counted the cost, the more likely it was that you would survive persecution, which, I mean, that makes sense, right? So we see here that not everybody got involved in the, in the body. Some people just kind of held back to see what was going on. But the people still, and these would be the unbelievers around them in Jerusalem, they held them in high esteem. 
And I love this in verse 14. More than ever, believers are added to the Lord multitudes. And they use the word multitudes of both men and women. And I don't have a number. There's no way to. Only God would know the number. But there are thousands of believers now, which is just so amazing in a few chapters. We think this was like a year later after the first part of Acts. This is at AD 34, we think. And so believers are added to the Lord, men and women. And verse 15, isn't this incredible? So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. This is a very Christ-like miracle. Now, Jesus told the disciples, you'll do greater miracles than I did with the power of the Holy Spirit, and maybe this is one of them. Obviously, the people are very superstitious. I mean, in town, they would bring out the sick, they'd put them along the roadside just so that when the apostles went by, their, their shadow would hit somebody and they'd be healed. And God has the power to do that. And even though it was superstitious, apparently he did heal. And so there was incredible healing going on. And so in verse 18, or verse 16, pardon me, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. So it's spreading out into the region, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So just imagine how, how wild that would have been to have walked down the street to see this happening. It would have been amazing. And, and so they flock in. Now, when good things are happening, Satan doesn't like it, obviously, and he attacks, and he attacks with persecution. So... I'll probably mention it later, but just for now, if you're not doing anything for the Lord, or if I'm not, don't worry about persecution. There's nothing to persecute. It's when you get into Satan's territory, he doesn't like it, then he fires back. So persecution only happens for people when they're actually trying to be faithful to the Lord. That's the bottom line. Isn't that amazing? And it's crazy, when I was at Voice of the Martyrs, I learned that... Um, when VOM was started, I'll tell you more about that later, but um, what happened was they were very strong on Bible distribution. I mean, we all are. But what they found was when they would hand out Bibles to people in other countries, the people would be persecuted because they had Bibles. And they thought, we're actually causing persecution. So what VOM did was expand to where they're taking care of those who have been persecuted, and that's part of the mission. If, you be, if you're being persecuted or if you get killed, they'll take care of the family. It's pretty amazing. And so the two main uh, organizations related to persecution that most people know are Open Doors and Voice of the Martyrs. We can get into that more later. That's not why I'm here today, but it does relate to how we treat those who are being persecuted. So in verse 17, the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Why in the world are they filled with jealousy? Because what you'll find with persecution is it's usually not that they're taking your statement of faith and they're saying, we're going to beat you or kill you because of your statement of faith. It's because you are worshiping someone different, Jesus. You're taking a different stand. You're challenging their authority. You're threatening them. And the Sadducees were in power. So what happened? You had the Romans in control of Jerusalem and Israel, but they didn't want to deal with issues like temple matters, religious matters, things like that. So they pretty much let the Sanhedrin take care of that kind of thing. The leading party, the majority party in the Sanhedrin were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were very much kind of your elite who loved power. They didn't really believe that much in anything, but they sure loved power. The Pharisees were a minority, and they were more focused on bringing righteousness to Israel as they were supposed to 
but they were the minority party. So what's happening here is with the disciples spreading the word and with thousands of people coming to Christ, it is a threat to the ruling party, which is the Sadducees. And you can't understand persecution without understanding that it is usually about power and control. And so that's what's going on. So filled with jealousy because of the power equation, they arrested the apostles and they put them in the public prison. But verse 19, God is in control. He's got another plan. An angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. I don't know what time they got let out, but the temple was closed at night. So as soon as daybreak happened and people were flocking back to the temple, then they went and they spoke. I just think it's interesting. God has the power to open the prison doors, right? But he brings in angels to be a part of his stewardship of his plan, just like he does with us. And I find it fascinating. We have several prison releases in the book of Acts. We're going to see Paul and Silas later, the Philippian jailer story in chapter 16. We're going to see Peter released. And in Acts chapter 12, when Peter is released, the famous Rhoda story, you know, an angel's there and an angel's like, hurry up. And I'm thinking, well, why do you even have to say that? You're an angel, right? I mean, you're in charge. But uh, the angels get very involved, and so do humans, and that's just God and his love draws us into his plan. Isn't that awesome? I think that's awesome. And uh, so he says, go and speak, and so they do. So the authorities want to be in control, but they're not, and God is in control, and we're about to see that. So what's fascinating now as you continue in verse 21 when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, the Sanhedrin. They call everybody, all the senate of the people of Israel. This is big. This is huge. And they sent to the prison to have them brought out. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. They didn't know what was going on, and they thought they were still there. They had not heard any different. So they returned and reported. And they said, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this was come, would come to. And especially the Sadducees were like, how did this happen? What does it mean? What's going to happen next? How do we control this and keep it, the lid on top of it? And they start to freak out, and they're very perplexed. They don't have a clue. And anything that would destabilize Jerusalem would take their power away from them. And so they're kind of freaking out here. In verse 25, and someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Ah, that's exactly what they did not want to happen. It's out of their control. I mean, this would make a great movie if you think about this. And you can imagine their worst nightmare comes alive here. And now they're really getting upset. And they realize they got a problem because the people are flocking to the apostles. And if they crack down on the apostles, the people will get upset with them and they'll have a riot. And riots kind of happen in Jerusalem that will happen later in the book of Acts. And so what do you do? They're in a difficult situation. Verse 26. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them. So these are your, your guards, your security, whatever. Kind of a temple police force. But not by force for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. 
it's known, uh, known that uh, the guards had a reputation. In fact, supposedly there were songs written about them that basically they wouldn't just carry prisoners back and forth, but they would beat them and they would club them and they would whip them and they would mistreat them. It was a very brutal environment. And the, the captain and all them, they didn't care about that. But what they did care about was that they did not incite a riot. So they told the guards, you don't beat them, not this time. Don't do that. We don't need one more incident. So they go and they get the disciples, and then they bring them. And I mean, it's so serious. They're, they're literally afraid they'll get killed by the mob. And verse 27, when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. We told you not to teach about Jesus. We told you not to stir this up. And here you've gone and done it, and you want to bring this man's blood on, your, on our heads. And I'm thinking, well, you already brought it on yourself, Bubba. But that's basically what he's saying. Just be quiet and everything will be fine. So if you're one of the apostles, you've got a decision to make. What does faithfulness to Jesus mean? Does it mean being quiet in this situation? Because that would have been the safe play. And again, like I said before, these are the guys who turned their back on Jesus the night of the betrayal. And yet, look what they say in verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. By the way, the hanging on the tree is known to be something that brings great shame and dishonor. So when they killed Jesus, they shamed him to the maximum extent that they could by hanging him on a tree. And he would have been naked on the tree. And it was a horribly shameful thing in that culture. And that's what they did to Jesus. And so Peter is saying, you're the ones that put him there. But, verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Ironically, isn't that what the nation wants? It really is. In Judaism then, they had the idea that at the end of time, God would have to purify their sins. And Peter is saying, that's what we're offering to you. It's been done. The Messiah has done it for you. And your nation can be blessed. But the clock is ticking because if you continue to disregard Jesus and you continue to persecute us, then God's grace will run out of sands in the hourglass, if you will. We're giving you the way out. Now, you look in the Old Testament with the kings in Israel. The nation was subject to what the kings did before the Lord, whether they were obedient or not. It's the same kind of thing here. You leaders of Israel, you have a chance to restore the nation. You have a chance to bring redemption by coming to Christ. It's your choice. And then uh, Peter, who is leading, which is cool. Uh, we are witnesses to these things. Verse 32, and so is the Holy Spirit. We have two witnesses and one of them is divine, whom God has given to those who obey him. So Peter says, this is God's plan. You have a choice. It's up to you. 
This is your redemption. Now, verse 32 or 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanting to kill him, them. The word for enraged here, this Greek word, is only used two times in the New Testament. This is one. The other one is with Stephen when they were enraged, when Stephen was giving his testimony, and then they killed him. They martyred Stephen. So the idea is of being split open and raised. They're so angry with this. They're so angry. And so obviously they want to kill these guys. But fortunately, a man of wisdom and restraint steps in in verse 34. A Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel. This is Gamaliel the first. You probably heard of Gamaliel because he trained who? Who? Saul. He trained Saul who became Paul. He is a teacher of the law. Now, he is a Pharisee, so he's very concerned about righteousness. He is not concerned about power. He's held in honor. By the way, I think you'll appreciate this. Um, let's see, where is it? Gamaliel, let me see the exact quote. The Mishnah, which is uh, Jewish writings, uh, commentary, is fascinating reading. He said that when Gamaliel died, quote, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died, unquote. That's how highly regarded Gamaliel was. And God is going to use his wisdom here. And he stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. In verse 35, he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. Now, the book of Acts has humor in it. I love it. It's spotted you know, back in and out of Acts in different ways. In Acts chapter 12, the Rhoda story, uh, in, story is very hilarious in many ways. There's a little bit of humor here in verse 36. He says, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thetis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. Now one thing about the Sadducees, they didn't care about theology. One thing about the Pharisees, they did, and they had a strong belief in the sovereignty of God, which I think is just awesome, and it comes out here because Gamaliel is saying, God in his sovereignty can engineer this, and if he is, you do not want to be standing in his way. And if he's not, then it's going to fall apart anyway. So if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Who wants that? So they took his advice in verse 40. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. This is persecution. Isn't there irony here? Gamaliel is like, look, if God is behind it, let him go. We'll see. If God is not behind it, they'll fall apart. So basically he's like, don't mistreat them. You know what they did? Okay, it says they beat them. There were different levels of beating. Obviously, the most extreme was scourging, and if you saw the Passion of the Christ, you saw that to the extreme. Um, but this is a step down, but what they did was they took a whip that had three calf skin thongs on it, 
and they would whip them, you know, the 40 minus 1, 39 lashes on the chest and the back. And it would tear up the skin, it would cause bleeding, and it could lead to death, or they were whipping them within an inch, inch of their lives. I just find it ironic that this is classic for the time. We're not sure if you're innocent or guilty. We're going to send you away, but as we do, we're going to beat you within an inch of your life. We're going to send a message. That's staggering. Now, if you're one of the apostles, there's no way that you would want to go through that unless you thought about what your Savior did for you, which was even worse. So when they beat them, they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, you know, and I'm sure they're thinking, everything's going to be fine now. We told them not to speak. Right. And they let them go. And then the apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ. The men who once turned tail on Jesus are now honored to bear his scars and to be counted worthy. Friends of mine are musicians that would uh, play at VOM conferences and they made a song called Beautiful Scars. I really should give you the words to that sometimes, it's just amazing. And we, had a, we did a video on it where we have obviously photos from around the world that have scars, people scarred in their face from acid or slicing or whatever with a knife. And uh, you know, we showed that, but the problem is, is like it just gets pretty heavy handed after a while. And the fact of the matter is I can show you many pictures of Christians with scars all over their faces who are smiling because they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ. In our modern economy, that does not equate. In the economy of Jesus Christ, the thought is, look what Jesus did for me. It's the least I can do. Why would I expect anything more? So that they rejoiced that they were counted worthy of the name and to suffer for Jesus in his name. First, second, pardon me, 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 through 12. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. The Thessalonians were in Macedonia. They were in a Greek area, not in Israel. But Paul says, your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions you are enduring. My friends, I don't pretend that in the United States yet we're suffering persecution, anything related to what they did here in the book of Acts or around the world. I mean, we get that. But if it happens, take comfort in what he says next. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And a grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, for the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you want to be counted worthy? I do. 
Don't we want that? And it doesn't mean that, you know, we're just asking to be punished. That's not this. It's not some kind of flagellation thing. But it's just that don't we want to honor our Lord and testify for him? And at the end of time, we want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And we want to hear, you were counted worthy, not because of yourself, but because of me and because of your faithfulness. That's what I wish. I'll tell you the story in a couple of weeks, but uh, I have a friend who was in, is Chinese and was in prison in China for six or seven years. And I'll show you a video on it. It's pretty amazing. But because she had a thick accent, when we would do the conferences, I would interview her up on the stage. So I'd let her tell her story for a little bit, and then I'd do an interview so we could process some of this. Her name is Sarah. That's her American name. And I said to Sarah, Sarah, were you afraid when you came to the United States that your faith would grow colder? And she said, yes. I was in Sudan in a, in a region, a very remote region, talking to a pastor who said, right now if the Lord came back, 80% of our people would go with him to heaven. The worst thing that would happen for us is if the persecution stopped. It's astounding. What I'd like to do this morning is take a few minutes to share this with you. Uh, hope it doesn't go terribly long, but I just really feel like I should share this. Uh, if I have time, I'm going to share a slide at the end. I think you'll, you'll appreciate but I think you'll appreciate all of this. Ironically, I'm doing it on a day when we have a potluck, forgive me. But I want to share with you, speaking of being counted worthy, a little bit about understanding persecution. I think this will help you quite a bit. The reason we're concerned about it is because Hebrews 13 tells us, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. That the scriptures tell us to remember our persecuted brothers and sisters because they are our family, they're our body. 1 Corinthians 12, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Uh, are any of you willing to have us take either your hands or your feet? No, you want them all. And that's the body of Jesus Christ. So this is Richard Wormbrand. Richard Wormbrand was from uh, Romania and uh, was imprisoned by the communists for 14 years. And eventually they let him go and go to the United States. This is around 1967. But they said to Wormbrand, if you tell what's happened to you, we are going to be watching, we will hunt you down, and we will kill you. Wormbrand was a man of incredible boldness and faith, and he was not uh, to be treated lightly. And he ended up, right after that, getting before a United States Senate subcommittee and speaking to them. Well, back then, you know, it was the height of the communism and all that, but you know kind of the deal. Nobody would believe that that stuff was going on behind the Iron Curtain. So literally in front of the subcommittee, Wormbrand opened up his shirt, took off his shirt, and showed them the scars on his body. They also imprisoned his wife. They told her he was dead. They threw her into a frozen river trying to get her to die. She did not. And so Wormbrand started a ministry in the United States called Jesus to the Communist World. And I've read some of the early newsletters, and they're pretty, they're pretty brutal. I mean, you talk about the pictures. There was no holding back. The ministry later rebranded to the Voice of the Martyrs. So when I was at VOM, one of my friends was an archivist there, and he happened to stumble across this quote 
we did not know it existed, and he found it deep in the archives. We were all blown away. Wormbrand said, when I was beaten at the bottom of my feet, my tongue cried. Now, why did the tongue cry? It was not beaten, but tongue and bottom of the feet were one body. If you would feel the pains of the oppressed brethren as yours, you would cry for a long time. By the way, we will make these slides available to you if you would like them. I'll get them to Alicia and she'll make them available. So if you want them, you can have them. The thing about Wormbrand, one of the tortures they did on him was to strap him in and to beat his feet with rods and such. And because of that, he had trouble walking. When he would go speak and he would be in the passenger seat, he'd have to put his feet up just because of the pain. And so what he's saying is, <laughs> my whole body felt it. And so the question is, does the body of Christ, universal, feel the pain of the persecuted? The reality of persecution, now this comes from open doors. Sometime later I'll explain the difference between open doors and VOM. They're both awesome, they're just, their focus is a little different. More persecution has happened in the last century than in all the centuries before. In just the last year, there have been over 360 million Christians living where high levels of persecution, where there are high levels of persecution and discrimination. Now this is the 2020 report. 5,898 Christians were killed in a year for their faith. That works out to almost 500 per month. 5,110 churches and Christian buildings have been attacked. Uh, India is having a problem with this, but other places are as well. 4,765 believers detained without trial. They're arrested, they're sentenced, or in prison. That's what's going on around the world. Now, this is a case where it might be hard for you to see this, but this is, um, this is from Open Doors, I think. Um, the darker reddish-orange is extreme persecution. Very high persecution is more of a goldish oranges kind of thing. And then uh, high persecution you see is kind of the yellowish greenish is how it comes out there. So you can see where it's taking place. And it's associated with the religions in those different areas, to be honest. And so I'm gonna go to this. Now, a friend of mine, Eric Foley, is from Colorado Springs Monument. Uh, he is the, the head of Voice of the Martyrs Korea. I'll tell you more about what they do. It's pretty awesome. And uh, I love Eric, and he's my go-to guy for really knowing what's going on with persecution. And Eric produced this. His team did five zones of persecution around the world. The blue, which is most of it, is basically secularism. So you see the United States is blue. Where I see persecution coming from here, I'll tell you in a little bit, but it's, it's a different angle. The red would be communism. So that's now kind of boiled down to mainly China. The stuff in China is vicious. Uh, Islam is the green. It might not be as big as you think. Uh, Hinduism and Buddhism are actually very vicious when it comes to persecution, and you see the different nations there. The whole thing with Buddhism, and I'm not going to get into it now, but that's just another fascinating thing in a bad way. So you see... Where we are is we're suffering from secularism, and so the challenge we have as Americans related to persecution is your faith does not jihad with the secular world that we live in. And that's where we get ragged on. One thing I learned over the years working with the persecuted is really you could boil it this way. Persecution is about power, 
control, order, wealth, and religion slash idolatry. Now, Jesus challenges all those. So it's definitely about Jesus, but what happens is, is that it clashes for the group in power. And if you're in a village somewhere in, in the world, like in Asia or wherever, and somebody becomes Christian and then starts to grow, you're clashing with the order there. Uh, sometimes it's a threat to wealth, almost like an organized crime thing. Uh, you see that in the book of Acts. Remember, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. Why? Because when somebody came to Christ, they stopped buying idols. It impacted the industry financially, and there was persecution. The levels of persecution, I've seen it on a national scale. Sudan, when I was there, the government, under the authority of the president, was flying Russian cargo planes that they had bought. They were flying them over the regions where people were not kowtowing to the government. They would fill them full of bombs. It was not precision bombing. They would roll the ramp open, and the bombs would come out and indiscriminately kill people. Uh, it's just, it was horrible. It can be regional. I think you see that kind of in India. You see more of the regional kind of persecution. It could be from a guerrilla group. Um, it could be from organized crime. Or even, this is so sad, community, tribe, village, or family. There have been plenty of family members who persecuted their children. Uh, one case, uh, India, where they took their daughter to the police and said she's a prostitute. She wasn't. She had just become a Christian. I mean, that's just, I just can't fathom that. And so what will happen with the church is that the frontal assault would be like, we're going to just directly come in and bomb you or beat you or kill you or whatever, and sometimes it happens. But what's hard is a lot of times it's the end around where they kind of don't make it a frontal assault. And then the types of persecution, persecution can be many. It can be physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, financial, social. I'll give you a few examples in the next couple of weeks. This is one of my favorite, if you will, examples. When I was in Laos, which is now called Lao, the locals told me about a thing called the family book. Now, on the surface of it, the family book is pretty cool because what it is, it's a family passport, and they'll put your pictures in there, and when you have major life events, they'll put them in there. <clears throat> but here's the deal. When a kid graduates from high school, they will stamp the graduation in the family book. But when the family's a Christian, the government will tell the authorities, don't stamp graduation in the book. Which means that child has no official record of graduation, even if he or she took every class. They cannot go to college. They cannot get a good job. And in that culture, that might mean you just go into the jungle and try to survive. It's pernicious. It's not a frontal assault. They're not beating the kid. It's just that's what it is. And I'm going to finish this morning with a thing I call the sphere of freedom. I think this will really appeal to you. I think you'll appreciate this. And this is where I'm sharing my perspective here on the U.S., if I may. <clears throat> the spheres of freedom, this is something I pulled together that I thought, you know, it just kind of works this way. Number one, practice of religion. We have been promised the freedom to practice our religion. You may practice your religion freedom freely in the United States, right? Generally, yes. What you have heard in the last maybe 10 years, I hear, I pick up wind of this, is what I would call not freedom of religion, but freedom of worship. And this is pernicious because there's an attempt by some to say, 
yes, the Constitution guarantees you freedom of religion. You may worship in your church, in your box or your building. You may worship as you wish. You have freedom of religion. But outside the walls of the church now, we're going to crack down on you. So uh, we're getting really fine in this, uh, you know, fine distinctions, but freedom of worship and practice of religion may not be the same thing, depending on whom you're talking to. Next would be public expression of religious opinion. Yes, you can express your religious opinion publicly in any forum. That's full freedom to do it. But the next step after that, which would restrict freedom, would be public expression of religiously based opinion. And a classic case with this is abortion. What if, you know, since you base, I'm sure, your opinion about abortion based on your religion and based on the Bible, what if you were told, well, that's okay for you, but you cannot express it publicly? And the persecution may be official or it may just be in other ways. Um, if you're on Facebook, I don't know about you, I've been, uh, for stupid reasons, I have been uh, put on restriction on Facebook two different times for crazy stuff. Well, I mean, they have the right to do it. They're a private entity. But when you see this happening at large, then uh, you feel like the walls are starting to come in on you. I think at some point what is going to happen, well, there will be attempts to restrict the private expression of religiously based opinion. And then the ultimate thing, we see this with communism in days gone by and today in China, which is your conscious of thought, we want to control your mind. So in China, if they want to repress you, and they did it behind the Iron Curtain as well, they'll put you into a psychological facility and basically brainwash you or turn you to jelly. And Richard Wormbrand said when he was in solitary confinement, if you're in there for a year or two, you're in trouble. And he said, it got to the point where I forgot everything, even forgot scriptures and forgot music and everything else until he was released. I ran into an attorney one time. I was running a race here in town. He had just flown in from Miami. He was running here a half marathon, amazing. But um, we were chatting, and he said, uh, my job is to go to Supermax and basically try to get reduced sentences for the prisoners there because he said when they're in solitary confinement, they're reduced to mental jello. That's what the Romanians tried to do to Wormbrand. So I don't want to, like, make it sound like everything's falling apart in the United States, but I promise you, you can track the steps of persecution in our country with this framework. And we may never get beaten publicly, but the attempt to restrict our speech is already underway. And that's where I see it. But what we'll see with all those around the world who are being persecuted is that they rejoice because they are counted worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all you do and all you uh, mean to us. Um, it's easy to live our faith when everybody's coming to church in our community and everything seems fine and easy. And there's no persecution there. There's nothing to persecute. But challenge us all individually to think about how we should live our faith and speak in places where maybe it's not so easy to be a Christian. In a place where maybe we'd be mocked for giving our testimony. So Father, this is a huge subject. We know it's a challenging subject. It's not the prettiest subject to get into. 
but we see it in the early church. Help us to learn from them and to learn how to rejoice even in the midst of our sufferings just like they did. And may that be our story. To the glory of Jesus Christ, amen.